This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. needed a breather from recording and editing new episodes this month, so I'm reprising a series of episodes on poetry about love between women. If you've been a podcast listener from the very beginning, I hope you enjoy them just as much as you did the first time. And if this is the first time you've heard these episodes, you have a real treat coming. Sheena had an idea to do a collection of Halloween-themed podcasts from all the regular contributors to the Lesbian Talk Show so I wanted to come up with a special Lesbian Historic Motif episode. It took me a while of brainstorming before I hit on a topic, Christina Rossetti's poem, The Goblin Market. Rossetti was part of a talented family of Italian immigrants to England in the mid-19th century. Her father was a painter, but the more famous painter in the family was her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who was one of the founders of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, a movement known for medievalism and sensuality. Another brother and a sister were writers, and Christina's mother, Frances Polidori, was the sister of John Polidori, a close friend of Lord Byron and the author of what may be the first modern vampire story. You see, lots of Halloween references. The Goblin Market indulges in a number of long flights of description, but before reveling in the beauty of the language, I want to focus specifically on the erotic imagery. So I'll start by alternating excerpts from the poem with the synopsis of the overall story. Two sisters, Cautious Lizzie and Daring Laura, encounter the goblin men who sell mysteriously tempting fruits. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry, Come buy our orchard fruits, come buy, come buy. There is a long catalogue of the fruits they sell, and then we meet the sisters. Evening by evening, among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear, Lizzie veiled her blushes, crouching close together, In the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips, lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, cried the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Lizzie warns her sister not to take the goblins up on their offered wares and continues on home. But... Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Definitely a description of someone giving in to temptation. Laura doesn't have a coin to buy the fruit, so instead they demand a lock of her golden hair in payment. Hair had a strong sexual symbolism in the Victorian era, and for a girl to give a man a lock of her hair was practically the next thing to handing him her virginity. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red, sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man-rejoicing wine, clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away. 
Lizzie scolds her when she gets home and reminds her of the cautionary tale of their friend Jeanie. Do you not remember Jeanie, how she met them in the moonlight, took their gifts both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours, but ever in the noonlight she pined and pined away, sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew gray. This is foreshadowing Laura's fate. Even as she scoffs at Lizzie's warning, she says, I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more, and kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I'll bring you plums tomorrow. Laura describes for Lizzie all the delicious goblin fruits she'll bring back to share. And then they go to bed together. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed. Like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast, locked together in one nest. The next day they go about their usual chores, but Laura's mind is elsewhere, and as they walk home in the evening she listens for the calls of the goblins in vain. Lizzie can still hear the goblins, which day by day drives Laura to distraction. So crept to bed and lay, silent till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for both desire and wept as if her heart would break. Laura begins to pine and waste away, just like Jeanie did. Her golden hair grows dull and thin, her spirit fades, she has sunken eyes and faded mouth. She stops eating and sits listlessly in a corner. Lizzie watches her sister decline and decides the only option is to go buy goblin fruit to revive her, even though Lizzie is afraid of what price she might pay. Till Laura dwindling seemed knocking at death's door. Then Lizzie weighed no more better and worse, but put a silver penny in her purse, kissed Laura, crossed the heath with clumps of firs at twilight, halted by the brook, and for the first time in her life began to listen and look. The goblins come to meet her, and not only offer her fruit, but harass her physically hugged her and kissed her, squeezed and caressed her, stretched up their dishes, panniers and plates, look at our apples, russet and done, bob at our cherries, bite at our peaches. Lizzie tosses them her silver coin and holds out her apron for the fruit. But the goblins keep urging her to eat them right there and then. When she steadfastly refuses, they turn nasty. It's a bit reminiscent of street harassers when rebuffed. And the goblins try to force Lizzie to consume the fruit in a scene that feels a lot like sexual assault. One called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud, their looks were evil. Lashing their tails, they trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking, twitched her hair out by the roots, stamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. Lizzie holds steadfast against this assault and is described as a citadel being unsuccessfully besieged. One may lead a horse to water, twenty cannot make him drink. Though the goblins cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her, pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, mauled and mocked her, Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip, lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck, which quaked like curd. Having successfully resisted eating the fruit, Lizzie hurries homeward because, of course, she does have goblin fruit to bring home to Laura, 
the fruit that the goblins have smeared all over her while trying to make her eat. She cried, Laura, up the garden. Did you miss me? Come and kiss me, never mind my bruises. Hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, squeezed from goblin fruits for you. Goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me, drink me, love me, Laura, make much of me. For your sake I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchantmen. Somewhat belatedly, Laura realizes that Lizzie might end up sharing her fate for trying to save her. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? And then, not from the addictive hunger for goblin fruit, but in gratitude and fear, she clung about her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her. Tears once again refreshed her sunken eyes, dropping like rain after long salty drought. Shaking with aguish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth. Laura kisses Lizzie and in the process consumes the juice of the goblin fruits. But that juice has been transformed by Lizzie's selfless deed. Her lips began to scorch. That juice was wormwood to her tongue. She loathed the feast. Writhing as one possessed, she leaped and sung, rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast. The fruit burns within her and Laura falls into a swoon. All through the night, Lizzie tends to Laura as if she were in a fever. But when morning comes, Laura awoke as from a dream, laughed in the innocent old way, hugged Lizzie, but not twice or thrice. Her gleaming locks showed not one thread of gray. Her breath was sweet as May, and light danced in her eyes. The poem ends with Lizzie telling the frightening cautionary tale to the next generation, a tale appropriate for a Halloween night. Laura would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime, of those pleasant days long gone of not returning time, would talk about the haunted glen, the wicked quaint fruit merchant men, their fruits like honey to the throat but poison in the blood, men sell not such in any town, would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote. Thus, the fruit-inspired sensuality has been left behind, as in a fever dream. The sisters have settled down to live conventional lives. What remains is the memory of the deep devotion that risks its life for the beloved. Despite the rather striking homoerotic imagery in her poem, there is no evidence that Rossetti's relationships with women went beyond sisterly devotion. On the other hand, she received three proposals of marriage from men and rejected them all, so who knows? But my interest here isn't on Rossetti's personal life rather on the strongly sensual imagery in her poem, depicting an intense devotion between two sisters that is expressed in language more suited to lovers. The Goblin Market's sensuality, not only the intense kissing and the more subdued scenes of cuddling in bed or clasping arms and tingling fingertips, occurs not only in the context of sisterly devotion, but also in scenes where the goblins tempt the women with sinister fruit or even try to force it on them. There isn't a clear correspondence of the sensual with the forbidden. This was an era when the trope of decadent lesbian sensuality tinged with the supernatural was becoming a thing, though primarily among male writers. Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Christabel is a long supernatural-themed poem with lesbian elements that were strong enough to get it condemned as obscene. The content falls in the monstrous seductress genre, where the noble maiden Christabel encounters the mysterious Geraldine in the forest and brings her home to her father's castle, where Geraldine has a strange and sinister influence on all she encounters. Christabel shares her bed with Geraldine, and the significance of this is emphasized with descriptions of disrobing and embraces. Beneath the lamp, the lady bowed and slowly rolled her eyes around, then drawing in her breath aloud like one that shuddered, she unbound the cincture from beneath her breast. 
her silken robe and inner vest dropped to her feet, and full in view behold her bosom and half her side, a sight to dream of, not to tell. Oh, shield her, shield sweet Christabel. Yet Geraldine nor speaks nor stirs. Ah, what a stricken look was hers. Deep from within she seems halfway to lift some weight with sick assay, and eyes the maid and seeks delay. Then suddenly, as one defied, collects herself in scorn and pride and lay down by the maiden's side, and in her arms the maid she took. But Geraldine's eventual goal is not to win Christabel, but to supplant her in her father's affections. The poem shares with the goblin market a supernatural force that causes the innocent woman to waste away, but here there is no sister to save her. The same process of wasting away by the influence of a supernatural intruder who feigns same-sex affection occurs in Sheridan Le Fanu's vampire novel Carmilla. Carmilla appears at the residence of the protagonist in the guise of a young woman, said to be something of an invalid. Despite Carmilla telling little of her background, the troop girls become close. She used to place her pretty arms about my neck, draw me to her, and laying her cheek to mine, murmur with her lips near my ear, Dearest, your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds with yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die, die, sweetly die, into mine. I cannot help it. As I draw near to you, you in your turn will draw near to others, and learn the rapture of that cruelty which yet is love. So, for a while, seek to know no more of me and mine, but trust me with all your loving spirit. And when she had spoken such a rhapsody, she would press me more closely in her trembling embrace, and her lips in soft kisses gently glow upon my cheek. In these mysterious moods I did not like her. I experienced a strange, tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable, ever and anon, mingled with a vague sense of fear and disgust. I had no distinct thoughts about her while such scenes lasted, but I was conscious of a love growing into adoration, and also of abhorrence. This, I know, is paradox, but I can make no other attempt to explain the feeling. Sometimes, after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with a tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardor of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful and yet overpowering, and with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips traveled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, You are mine. You shall be mine. You and I are one forever. Then she had thrown herself back in her chair with her small hands over her eyes, leaving me trembling. Other works from the mid-19th century that carry this association of sensuality between women, tinged with a mysterious and malevolent decadence, include Honoré de Balzac's The Girl with the Golden Eyes and Théophile Gautier's Mademoiselle de Maupin. All these works have two things in common that contrast with the goblin market. They are written by men, and the sensual relationship shown between the women is destructive and a source of guilt rather than being a source of redemption. Christina Rossetti's work comes out of an entirely different tradition, that of romantic friendship, where close emotional relationships between women were idealized and valorized. Such relationships were not considered to partake of sexuality, though we know that in some cases they did. Within the romantic friendship tradition, descriptions of sisters cuddling together in bed or kissing passionately would not have been considered sexual as such, and so could be portrayed without any sense of self-consciousness or guilt. The goblin market is easily interpreted as an allegory, though an allegory for what is debatable. 
A Christian interpretation is certainly possible with its themes of temptation, of a fall, and of redemption through an innocent person's suffering on behalf of another. It's also possible to see it as an allegory for drug addiction, and it's thought that part of the poem may have been inspired by Rossetti's work at a charity house for former prostitutes, a context where she may have seen the effects of addiction to drugs or alcohol. Alternately, it can be viewed as an allegory of predatory male sexuality and sexual trauma. It's worth noting that the goblins are referred to consistently as male, and no other male characters figure in the poem. Given all these considerations, interpreting the sensual imagery and passionate embraces of the poem as depicting lesbian eroticism is not entirely unproblematic. These complexities are always present when modern readers try to find connections with literature from another era. And now, an entertainment for the night of Halloween, when pathways open up between the worlds and someone who lingers on the path at twilight may hear goblins calling out, Come by! Come by! The Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti, published in 1862 and read by Heather Rose Jones. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry, Come buy our orchard fruits, come buy, come buy, Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, Pluck unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, Bloom down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, Wild freeborn cranberries, crabapples, dewberries, Pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, All ripe together in summer weather. Morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly, Come by, come by. Our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates full and fine, dates and sharp bullaces, rare pears and green gauges, damsons and bilberries, taste them and try. Currants and gooseberries, bright fire like barberries, figs to fill your mouth, citrons from the south, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, come by, come by. Evening by evening, among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear, Lizzie veiled her blushes. Crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, called the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, 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 their offers should not charm us. Their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail. One like a wombat prowled up tooth and furry, one like a rattle tumbled hurry-scurry. She heard a voice like voice of doves cooing all together. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Backwards up the mossy glen turned and trooped the goblin men with their shrill repeated cry, Come by! Come by! 
When they reached where Laura was, they stood stock still upon the moss, leering at each other, brother with queer brother, signaling each other, brother with sly brother. One set his basket down, one reared his plate. One began to weave a crown of tendrils, leaves, and rough nuts brown. Men sell not such in any town. One heaved the golden weight of dish and fruit to offer her. Come by, come by, was still their cry. Laura stared, but did not stir longed but had no money. The wisp-tailed merchant bade her taste in tones as smooth as honey. The cat-faced purred. The rat-faced spoke a word of welcome, and the snail-faced even was heard. One parrot-voiced and jolly cried, Pretty goblin, still, for pretty Polly. One whistled like a bird. But sweet-toothed Laura spoke in haste, Good folk, I have no coin. To take were to purloin. I have no copper in my purse. I have no silver either. And all my gold is on the furse That shakes in windy weather Above the rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, They answered all together. Buy from us with a golden curl. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, Then sucked their fruit globes fair or red, Sweeter than honey from the rock. Stronger than man-rejoicing wine, clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more, fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone, and knew not was it night or day as she turned home alone. Lizzie met her at the gate, full of wise upbraidings. Dear, you should not stay so late. Twilight is not good for maidens, should not loiter in the glen, in the haunts of goblin men. Do you not remember Jeanie, how she met them in the moonlight? Took their gifts, both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours. But ever in the noonlight she pined and pined away, sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew gray, then fell with the first snow, while to this day no grass will grow where she lies low. I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. You should not loiter so. Nay, hush, said Laura. Nay, hush, my sister. I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more, and kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I'll bring you plums tomorrow. Fresh on their mother twigs, cherries worth getting. You cannot think what figs my teeth have met in, what melons icy cold piled on a dish of gold too huge for me to hold, what peaches with a velvet nap, pellucid grapes without one seed, odorous indeed must be the mead whereon they grow, and pure the wave they drink with lilies at the brink, and sugar sweet their sap. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby. Lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast locked together in one nest. Early in the morning, when first cock crowed his warning, neat like bees as sweet and busy, Laura rose with Lizzie. Fetched in honey, milked the cows, aired and set to rights the house, kneaded cakes of whitest wheat, cakes for dainty mouths to eat. Next churned butter, whipped up cream, fed their poultry, sat and sewed, talked as modest maidens should. Lizzie, with an open heart, 
Laura, in an absent dream, one content, one sick in part, one warbling for the mere bright day's delight, one longing for the night. At length slow evening came, they went with pitchers to the reedy brook, Lizzie most placid in her look, Laura most like a leaping flame. They drew the gurgling water from its deep, Lizzie plucked purple and rich golden flags, then turning homeward said, the sunset flushes those furthest loftiest crags. Come, Laura, not another maiden lags. No willful squirrel wags. The beasts and birds are fast asleep. But Laura loitered still among the rushes and said the bank was steep and said the hour was early still. The dew not fallen, the wind not chill. Listening ever but not catching the customary cry. Come by, come by, with its iterated jingle of sugar-baited words. Not for all her watching, once discerning even one goblin, racing, whisking, tumbling, hobbling, let alone the herds that used to tramp along the glen, in groups or single of brisk fruit merchant men. Till Lizzie urged, O oh, Laura, come, I hear the fruit call, but I dare not look. You should not loiter longer at this brook. Come with me home. The stars rise, the moon bends her arc, each glowworm winks her spark. Let us go home before the night grows dark, for clouds may gather though this is summer weather, put out the lights and drench us through. Then if we lost our way, what should we do? Laura turned cold as stone to find her sister heard that cry alone, that goblin cry, come buy our fruits, come buy. Must she then buy no more such dainty fruit? Must she no more such succus pasture find, gone deaf and blind? Her tree of life drooped from the root. She said not one word in her heart's sore ache, but peering through the dimness, not discerning, trudged home, her pitcher dripping all the way, so crept to bed and lay silent till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for balked desire and wept as if her heart would break. Day after day, night after night, Laura kept watch in vain, in sullen silence of exceeding pain. She never caught again the goblin cry, come by, come by. She never spied the goblin men hawking their fruits along the glen, but when the noon waxed bright, her hair grew thin and gray. She dwindled as the fair full moon doth turn to swift decay and burn her fire away. One day, remembering her colonel's stone, she set it by a wall that faced the south, dewed it with tears, hoped for a root, watched for a waxing shoot, but there came none. It never saw the sun, it never felt the trickling moisture run, while with sunk eyes and faded mouth she dreamed of melons, as a traveler sees false waves in desert drought, with shade of leaf-crowned trees, and burned the thirstier in the sandful breeze. She no more swept the house, tended the fowls or cows, fetched honey, kneaded cakes of wheat, brought water from the brook, but sat down listless in the chimney nook and would not eat. Tender Lizzie could not bear to watch her sister's cankerous care, yet not to share. She night and morning caught the goblin's cry, Come by our orchard fruits, come by, come by. Beside the brook, along the glen, she heard the tramp of goblin men, the yoke and stir poor Laura could not hear longed to buy fruit to comfort her, but feared to pay too dear. She thought of Jeanie in her grave, who should have been a bride, but who, for joys brides hoped to have, fell sick and died in her gay prime, in earliest winter time, with the first glazing rhyme, with the first snowfall of crisp winter time. Till Laura, dwindling, seemed knocking at death's door, then Lizzie weighed no more, better and worse, but put a silver penny in her purse, kissed Laura, 
across the heath with clumps of firs at twilight halted by the brook and for the first time in her life began to listen and look laughed every goblin when they spied her peeping came towards her hobbling flying running leaping puffing and blowing chuckling clapping crowing clucking and gobbling mopping and mowing full of airs and graces pulling wry faces demure grimaces cat-like and rat-like rattle and wombat-like snail-paced in a hurry parrot-voiced and whistler helter-skelter hurry-scurry chattering like magpies fluttering like pigeons gliding like fishes hugged her and kissed her squeezed and caressed her stretched up their dishes panniers and plates Look at our apples, russet and dun, bob at our cherries, bite at our peaches, citrons and dates, grapes for the asking, pears red with basking, out in the sun, plubs on their twigs, pluck them and suck them, pomegranates, figs. Good folk, said Lizzie, mindful of Jeanie, give me much and many, held out her apron, tossed them her penny. Nay, take a seat with us, honor and eat with us, they answered, grinning. Our feast is but beginning, night yet is early, warm and dew pearly, wakeful and starry. Such fruits as these no man can carry, half their bloom would fly, half their dew would dry, half their flavor would pass by. Sit down and feast with us, be welcome guest with us, cheer you and rest with us. Thank you, said Lizzie, but one waits at home alone for me, so without further parleying, if you will not sell me any of your fruits, though much and many, give me back my silver penny I tossed you for a fee. They began to scratch their pates, no longer wagging, purring, but visibly demurring, grunting and snarling. One called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud, their looks were evil. Lashing their tails, they trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her cloud with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking, twitched her hair out by the roots, stamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. White and golden, Lizzie stood, like a lily in a flood, like a rock of blue-veined stone lashed by tides obstreperously, like a beacon left alone in a hoary roaring sea, sending up a golden fire, like a fruit-crowned orange tree, white with blossoms, honey-sweet, sore beset by wasp and bee, like a royal virgin town topped with gilded dome and spire, close beleaguered by a fleet, mad to tug her standard down. One may lead a horse to water, twenty cannot make him drink. Though the goblins cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her, pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, mauled and mocked her, Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip, lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck which quaked like curd. At last the evil people, worn out by her resistance, flung back her penny, kicked their fruit along whichever road they took, not leaving root or stone or shoot. Some writhed into the ground, some dived into the brook, with ring and ripple, some scudded on the gale without a sound, some vanished in distance. In a smart, ache-tingle, Lizzie went her way, knew not was it night or day, sprang up the bank, tore through the firs, threaded cops and dingle, and heard her penny jingle bouncing in her purse. Its bounce was music to her ear. She ran and ran as if she feared some goblin man, dogged her with jibe or curse or something worse. 
but not one goblin scurried after, nor was she pricked by fear. The kind heart made her windy paste that urged her home quite out of breath with haste and inward laughter. She cried, Laura, up the garden, did you miss me? Come and kiss me, never mind my bruises. Hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, squeezed from goblin fruits for you, goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me, drink me, love me, Laura, make much of me. For your sake I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchantmen. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden, your young life like mine be wasted, undone in mine undoing and ruined in my ruin, thirsty, cankered, goblin-ridden? She clung about her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her. Tears once again refreshed her sunken eyes, dropping like rain after long sultry drought, Shaking with augish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed with a hungry mouth. Her lips began to scorch. That juice was wormwood to her tongue. She loathed the feast. Writhing as one possessed, she leaped and sung, rent all her robe, and wrung her hands in lamentable haste, and beat her breast. Her locks streamed like the torch borne by a racer at full speed, or like the mane of horses in their flight, or like an eagle when she stems the light straight toward the sun, or like a caged thing freed, or like a flying flag when armies run. Swift fire spread through her veins, knocked at her heart, met the fire smoldering there and overbore its lesser flame. She gorged on bitterness without a name. Ah, fool to choose such part of soul-consuming care. Sense failed in the mortal strife, like the watchtower of a town, which an earthquake shatters down, like a lightning-stricken mast, like a wind-uprooted tree, spun about like a foam-topped water spout, cast down headlong in the sea, she fell at last. Pleasure past and anguish past. Is it death or is it life? Life out of death. That night long, Lizzie watched by her, counting her pulses flagging stir, felt for her breath, hold water to her lips, and cooled her face with tears and fanning leaves. But when the first birds chirped about their eaves and early reapers plodded to the place of golden sheaves and dew-wet grass, bowed in the morning winds so brisk to pass, and new buds with the new day oped of cup-like lilies on the stream, Laura awoke as from a dream, laughed in the innocent old way, hugged Lizzie, but not twice or thrice. Her gleaming locks showed not one thread of gray, her breath was sweet as May, and light danced in her eyes. Days, weeks, Months, years afterwards, when both were wives with children of their own, their mother hearts beset with fears, their lives bound up in tender lives. Laura would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime, those pleasant days long gone of not returning time, would talk about the haunted glen, those wicked, quaint fruit merchant men, their fruits like honey to the throat, but poisoned in the blood. Men sell not such in any town would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote. Then joining hands to little hands would bid them cling together, for there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather, to cheer one on the tedious way, to fetch one if one goes astray, to lift one if one totters down, to strengthen whilst one stands. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. 
If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.